Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared. Welcome, valuable PhD, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. As always, you can join us for our next live show on our Facebook page where we stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist we also stream the show live every wednesday at 1 p.m eastern standard time on our cheeky scientist youtube page this is the radio show for phds who want to excel in industry if you want to learn more about cheeky scientist or our program the cheeky scientist association you can go to phdsgethired.com just enter your name and email address and we will send you all of our free materials about transitioning into industry What is the Cheeky Scientist Association? It is the world's largest training program for PhDs by PhDs that includes a complete blueprint of how to transition into industry and a private job referral network only of PhDs in industry and transitioning into industry. If you already have an industry job or if you want to learn more about developing your business acumen for industry, You can learn about our Scientist MBA Advanced Program at PhDsGetHired.com. We have another great show lined up for you today, so we're going to jump in now. Hello, I'm Isaiah with Cheeky Scientist. This is the Cheeky Scientist radio show. We have a great show lined up today. We're going to be talking about how to get into a career that's different than your PhD background. One thing we like to do at the very beginning of the show is give you an insider job search tip. And something we haven't talked a lot about is interviewing. So I'm going to talk to you about how to interview correctly. What's the most important thing of interviewing is being an interviewer yourself, asking questions. You're going to get a few questions asked to you. And then very quickly, it's going to be turned around on you. Do you have any questions for us? That's a critical period in the interview process. And if you go on a site visit for a PhD level job, you could have up to eight to 10 individual interviews. You're going to get asked a lot. Do you have any questions for us? Do you know what to ask? This is where you need to pull out a folio or a piece of paper, right? A legal pad with your questions. What should those questions be? That's what we're going to talk about here. So these are question types. These are the questions that you can focus on when you go to an interview, when you're on a phone screen, when you hear that prompt, Do you have any questions for us? Okay, the number one, and a lot of PhDs don't think about this because in academia, we're we're usually in a flat hierarchy. There's like your PI, right, or your advisor, or your professor, and then there's everybody else. And that's the hierarchy. In other words, there is no hierarchy, really. Um, But in industry, hierarchy matters because it indicates the flow of communication, okay, the chain of communication. And when you're going to a company, especially if it's, you know, anything larger than a startup, right? Even a small company, by definition, a small company in industry is any company with a hundred to a thousand employees. So actually very big. How do all of those people get stuff done? Communication is key. And there has to be these channels of communication that are created by hierarchy very often. So every department, right? Whatever department that you're trying to get a job in is going to have its own hierarchy, right? There might be a department head. And if it's in research, for example, it could be a principal scientist. It It could be the CSO. 
right? Who is that person at the top and how does the chain of communication flow through that department, through the company? Who are you going to be reporting to? Who's going to be reporting to you? Obviously, if you're going to have subordinates, it's going to be important uh, for you to know. So when you start, you realize that people are going to be coming to you with questions that you're going to have to manage. Who are you going to be reporting to? So who, who do you bring your problems, your issues to? Who do you have to answer to? Very great question to ask because it shows that you understand how industry works and you're not stuck in an academic mindset where you just think everything works the way a lab does or a classroom does. Okay. Number two, mergers and acquisitions. Always crucial. When you get this white paper, one of the things you're going to see, the white paper we talked about earlier um, as, as the show up bonus, one of the things you're going to see is that mergers and acquisitions continue to increase in biotech R&D, the pharmaceutical industry, um, medical testing labs, CROs, uh, on and on, uh, healthcare in general. Why? Because as a when a company gets to a certain size, they have to focus more on infrastructure and keeping the company running. And so they may not have as much time or money to innovate new products. So they buy up companies that have a new product on the market that would fit into their portfolio um, or that fills a gap in their portfolio. There's a lot of different reasons, but you need to understand when companies merge, when they acquire, so that you can ask the company that you're interviewing for if there's any mergers and acquisitions in the works that they can talk about, right? There might be some uh, stuff they can't release publicly yet, but ask them, do your research on it too. Right? It's great to bring up, oh, I read that you recently merged with XYZ or you recently acquired one of the companies that I interviewed with. They recently acquired a uh, company that made cell culture medium. I didn't even know that. They didn't have cell culture medium and it was a gap in their product portfolio, so they purchased this other small company. Mergers and acquisitions are happening all the time in, in industry, so find out what they are. Ask about them. It's going to show that business acumen. It's going to make you a stronger candidate. Same with restructurings. Why is this job available? That's a great question to ask. Why are you hiring for this position? Very intelligent question to ask. Most people uh, forget that. They, you might actually get asked that question too. Do you know why we're hiring? Right. So you can turn it back on them and say, well, I, I know X, Y, Z, but what you know, are there other reasons that you're hiring? For example, they could be, they could have created a brand new department. They have a new product they need to support. Right. Uh, people left. Whatever the reason is, it's valuable to know that and it shows your value when you ask it. What's the career trajectory? Don't act like you're just going to take any position, right? And sometimes we get in desperation mode as PhDs and we think we're going to take any position, but you don't want to display that. So if you ask what the career trajectory is, it's going to make them sell the position and the position's future to you. Right? Where can you go from here? Can you get into management? Is it a management track? Is there a leadership track? Emerging markets, right? What markets do they want to go into in the future? What sort of strategic alliances? Are they hoping to set up or have they recently set up? Sales and marketing, that is a great thing for any PhD to ask because it's usually um, something that seems very uh, distal to our training. So you want to ask, you know, what's, what kind of marketing efforts, what are some of the new marketing efforts that you're doing? Great way to show your business acumen. Um, how, do, how does my department, R&D, communicate with the sales team? How can we support the sales team? For a business to survive, they have to sell a product, right? So again, this just shows that you have business acumen. You understand that there's more to a, making a company successful than just the R&D division, for example. What new products or projects or patents are upcoming or are here or have recently be, been released? Um, and then the corporate strategy, right? Again, make them sell themselves to you. So where does the company want to be in a year, right? Where, where do you want me to help the company get to? And this shows that your focus is on the company as well, not just yourself. Where does the company want to be in five years? It also shows that you know how to uh, think strategically and knows, help 
shows that you know how to think in terms of what's important in, in industry, not just yourself, not just at more of the micro or in the weeds like we tend to get as PhDs. So now we're going to move to the show me the data section. Show me the data section. All right, so I'm going to bring on Jeanette now, and Jeanette's going to help take us through the show me the data section. We have a great data section here, all focused on LinkedIn and with some real data that's going to impact how you navigate LinkedIn and where you place it in terms of your priority in your job search. So welcome, Jeanette. How are you? Hey, great. I'm so glad to be here. So we have a great show me the data section. This first article, for those of you listening to us by audio, I'm going to read the full title here and walk you through it in detail while those of you who can see it review it. Okay, so the title is, Is LinkedIn Making You More Successful? Question mark. The informational benefits derived from public social media. On the left, we have a bunch of questions that people who went through the survey and study were asked. Um, it was, what does professional information mean to you? One question, for example, was, I receive information about innovations in my field from my network members. Um, the relationships that I maintain are helpful in making career moves. I can get access to knowledge that is helpful in mastering job tasks from my network members. So all of these questions about what professional information and really professional networking means and these were lined up with their actual activity on LinkedIn, which we're going to talk to Jeanette about in a second. Then on the right side of what we're looking at here, there's a table that's titled Overview Over Hypotheses, RQ and Results. There's a bunch of hypotheses listed in one of the columns, and then the results and whether the results were supported or not. So Jeanette, help, help, us, help me in terms of clarity here. So these questions that were asked about what professional information and networking means, they were lined up with how the responder actually used LinkedIn. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. The study looked at how the activity that people had on their different social media networks, how that related to the success that they felt they had in this professional information area. This mm -hmm. like basically it's like how you know, connected are you to your job, how well are you doing in your career, those kinds of questions, and how did that correlate with how you use social media. Got it. So basically it was trying to match up perception with reality here. Yeah, yeah. And to see if those people who feel like they have a high level of professional information, are they using social media in a certain way that's making them more successful? And then they also, and what they're trying to get is what, if so, what was that certain way, right? And that's Correct. what results supported or not supported. Yep. And that RQ just means research question. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. So yeah. can you help me understand some of these hypotheses and which were supported and which were not and what are some of the key takeaways we can gather? Yeah. From? Yeah. So I'll just go straight to the, what I think the meat of this is the really exciting parts of this. The key takeaways is that they found that there was a correlation between a high level of this professional information and the amount that people posted mm. on social media, you know, and on LinkedIn. So it wasn't necessarily just being active. It was what are you producing? What are you contributing? And those people who contributed more highly were more successful in this professional information area. Yes. And that's, and that's something I know we'll talk about today um, with Petra. And we've talked about in the past uh, frequently. Just recently with, with Donna Sardula, we talked about you know, the activity on LinkedIn being huge. 
And so, you know, not just reading people's LinkedIn profiles and reaching out, which of course is important, but if you want to be shown to more employers, you have to, I believe she called it splash around, right? You have to increase your activity, comment on a post even, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do some things. And that's shown here in a scientific study that it actually helps increase your network, your activity, and how uh, you're leveraging LinkedIn professionally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so these things are, if you want, if you do go look in the paper, you can see that they're significantly correlated. I just didn't want to show that horrible correlation table. Yeah. Um, so, but the next thing that's really key from this study is that the number of strong and weak connections mattered on LinkedIn. So only on LinkedIn did it matter if you had both strong and weak connections. And when you had lots of these strong and weak connections, you increased your professional success. Yeah, and so we're, we're focusing on the ones that are a little bit unexpected or maybe not as well known. Like other things were like, okay, you know, strategic networking helps you be professional. Yes, okay. Um, you know, posting stuff uh, in terms of uh, LinkedIn blogs, for example, if you look at the full article, was helpful. But this, I think a lot of people overlook this or they don't realize that the weak connections really matter on LinkedIn. And there's a lot of other studies backing this up that some we've talked about before, I've read a lot of them that show that the weak connections matter the most. In fact, your best chance of getting a job is actually through a weak connection versus a strong connection for a variety of reasons. And that's backed up here in the data. And it makes, it differentiates it in terms of LinkedIn activity versus for example, Facebook or Twitter, right? So on Facebook and Twitter, right? There's only a positive effect associated with strong ties or strong connections. On LinkedIn, it was both strong and weak. What does that mean specifically, more practically? Your shared connections on LinkedIn matter. It's not just your direct connections. It's those secondary, those tertiary connections, which are all called shared connections now, right? Jeanette, what do, what do you have in closing on that? Yeah, that's what I think. I think don't undervalue those, those secondary connections or even the people that you kind of know on LinkedIn, right? So I think sometimes we're like hesitant to connect with someone on the internet. You're like, I don't really know this person. I don't want to be their friend, right? But do it because those are how you can build out that weak connection like network and then that's how you're going to be able to grow your professional success. And what I really think is it's because when you have a weak connection, right, it's they – they're just going to see the positive qualities when you first meet somebody. And maybe these are non-PhDs. Maybe PhDs were a little bit more critical to begin with. But you see the positive qualities. But once they get to really know you, they start to see some of the, the weaknesses, the, 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 the difficulties, et cetera. And let's be honest. I mean, how does a, in a job search, when you go for a site visit, you're putting your best foot forward. Right? You're trying to show up all your strengths. And you might get one question like, what's your biggest weakness, whatever. But for real, like they're trying – to evaluate whether or not you're able to show all your best stuff. Same with your resume, everything. And so when you have these weak connections, shared connections, they're gonna see all of the good stuff because that's what you have on LinkedIn. You're not putting everything that you're horrible at on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> okay. And so they're gonna, yeah. And then as they get to know you, they're gonna discover that you're just human and they're gonna see more of the weaknesses, et cetera. Um, so that's just, it's, it's just the nature of human psychology. And, and so when it comes to a job, these weak connections can be very, very powerful, sometimes more powerful than the strong connections. Um, and again, Jeanette was spot on. I had somebody at a talk, I think it was at UNC, say I had somebody in fashion connect with me on LinkedIn. And I know nothing about fashion, not interested in it. So I rejected them. And I'm like, okay, but what about the you know, 500, the 1,000 connections that that person has? Maybe they know somebody working at the company you want to work for and all 
you would have had to do is get to know that person, say thanks for connecting, and then maybe ask for an introduction to that other person, and you're on your way to a referral. So that's the power of those weak ties. Okay, figure number, well, there's like three figures here, but the second section, it's a 2018 Career Builder Survey. It says the national survey was conducted online on behalf of Career Builder by the Harris Poll, and it included a representative sample of more than 1,000 hiring managers. So that's a good sample size and human resource professionals across industries and company sizes in the private sector. So we're looking at a pie chart here, and the question that was answered in the pie chart, and it's just a yes-no question, was have you found content online that caused you not to hire a candidate? So it's fairly evenly split here. So it's no, 43% uh, of the people said no, 57% said yes. What conclusions, if any, can we draw from this, Jeanette? Um, that even though it's about split, that means that 57% of hiring managers have found things online where they were thinking, yes, I'm going to hire this candidate. And then they're like, nope, never mind. Yeah. Right? So it's really important to be aware of what your online presence is so that you, know, you can prevent this from happening. Yeah, and, it's, and remember, it's, it's not going to be perfect for everybody. That's why you can't be everybody's ideal job candidate. You've got to narrow it down to two to three different job titles. You have to tailor your LinkedIn profile to the job postings and specifically the technical skills and transferable skills on the job postings or, you know, the average job posting for those two to three positions. And you just have to speak to your audience. You can't, again, and, and one thing, even with location, like so many PhDs, we don't add a location to our headline, even though we know it's the, one of the first things that's going to be searched on LinkedIn Recruiter because we don't want to limit ourselves. But by not adding a location, you are limiting yourself. You can put on there willing to relocate, but you have to target your profiles. You have to target your resume. If you don't, you're going to have something on there. You're much more likely to have something on there that your target audience doesn't want to see, which means they won't hire you because of that. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the obvious stuff, right, where like a picture of whatever you did in undergrad that shouldn't be online is there. We're talking about not having the right professional words, not having it targeted toward, to the employer in terms of the job posting keywords. The second pie chart. Looks like a, a very similar breakdown, but it's reversed, right? So no was 53%, yes was 47%. The question is, if you can't find a candidate online, are you less likely to hire them? What conclusions can be drawn from this, Jeanette? Yeah, I think that this one is really interesting because this is like, you might want to be really private with your profile, right? A lot of people have this kind of mentality, but this shows you that sometimes if you're not visible, you know, they won't hire you because it's like, well, where are you, right? Who, what is your professional profile? Like they don't, they can't find you. So it's almost like a lack of trust. And so the 47% of these hiring managers and recruiters that were surveyed said, if they can't find you, they're not going to hire you. Yeah. And let me be a little bit more blunt. If you are not <laughs> online and they can't find you, they're thinking weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> because these people live in this world like the hiring managers recruiters they're living on linkedin the, the study shows that like over 90 percent of employers are using linkedin in some way you have to even put linkedin on your resume now and if they if you don't have a picture right you have like your privacy settings adjusted so people can't see your picture unless they connect with you weirdo you don't have a linkedin profile weirdo that's what they're thinking because they don't know like you could be a weirdo is really what they're thinking yeah. and so you, you have to get past this. As PhDs, I know we get very private or protective or we, I don't know what we're, what we're thinking, what we're concerned about, but LinkedIn, you control the information that can be put on there. 
you want to get a job, you got to be willing to answer the phone. You got to be willing to be seen on LinkedIn. You got to expose yourself professionally in the right way. Okay. Last chart from this uh, this study: Why are employers looking candidates up online? So, 58% said looking for information that supports qualifications. 50% said if they have an online presence in general. 34% what said what other people are posting about the candidate. Interesting, and then 22% said a reason not to hire the candidate, which is fascinating because I think a lot of hiring managers, right, when they get a, a resume, they're just looking for a reason to throw that resume out, right? They're like more than almost anything else. So, like, is anything on here out of place? The formatting, like the initial walkthrough. Same thing. Like, think about the last email you opened from somebody you didn't know. You're just looking for a reason to archive it. You are. Just you don't even want to spend time on it. You're looking for a reason to archive it unless you see something in there. And everything else is okay, and it seems like something might be interesting for you. So, Jeanette, walk us through each of these and and what conclusions, what actions we could take based on this data. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually going to disagree with you a little bit there. I think that this data is showing that hiring managers are looking for a reason to hire you, right? So we know that most job hirings come from referrals, right? So they might they have your resume that someone has given to them, and they want to hire you. They want to give you this job, and so they go online to look to make sure that your qualifications match what you're saying, that your online presence supports this resume that they have and what they've been told about you. So yeah. I think that that's what that big 58% of employers are going online. That's why they're doing it, right? To look and make sure that you match this resume so that they can hire you. Yeah, and I think there's an important distinction there in terms of priority because they're obviously looking for a job candidate. They need to hire somebody to keep their job if they're a hiring manager. They need to hire somebody to get their commission if they're a recruiter. But they are looking for red flags, which can be very, very tiny. So the first one, looking for information that supports your qualifications, you flip it around, they're really they're looking to see if it doesn't support your qualifications. <laughs> I guess that's true. Right, so, uh, no, but it's, it's true. So both, it's, it, it goes both ways. And mm -hmm. you just don't want to give them a reason to discard you or to stop looking. You want to keep them interested in digging into the rabbit hole enough so that they pick up the phone and call you for a, a phone screen. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah. Overall, I mean, what it means here is that is an online presence important, yes or no, based on the data? What would you say? <laughs> yes, of course. It's, yeah, it's but, very important. But, but as P, a lot of PhDs don't think so. We think that somehow it doesn't apply to us. Like we're above this whole online. Yeah, that's true. Right? We're above the process. I don't need a link. I mean, how many people have come into the association that don't have a LinkedIn profile or just have graduate student at XYZ University and then just, yeah. you know, their job titles, which are really academic titles. So yeah, yes. So it's very, very important that you have an online presence, that you have a LinkedIn profile so that those employers can go and find you and be impressed by that profile. Yeah, yeah. It's how you communicate with them before you start communicating with them. That's really what it is. So great stuff, Jeanette. So the last one here is, is LinkedIn valuable, right? So we talked about its value in terms of your job search, but what is LinkedIn really worth? And for those of you don't, that don't know, Microsoft purchased LinkedIn. And it was a, a very expensive, but also very intelligent and strategic purchase because a lot of the companies you'll go and work for will use Windows, um, no matter if you are you know, an Apple person, a Windows, Google person, doesn't matter, but just because that you know Microsoft has been around so long and the, the security systems, the VPNs, et cetera, for a lot of companies, and it changes country to country, are set up on Microsoft Office. 
Um, so LinkedIn is becoming more and more important, not just to job seekers, but to companies. Companies are organizing their talent acquisition and they're hiring all based on LinkedIn. And so if we have to put a number to it, we can because this chart shows how much Microsoft paid for the acquisition of LinkedIn versus um, some of its other acquisitions. So I'll let you read the numbers off here, Jeanette, for maybe just the top three or four. Yeah, so these are Microsoft's largest acquisitions. And when they purchased LinkedIn, they paid $26.2 billion for LinkedIn. So it's an incredibly valuable platform. And you can see that it's way more expensive than their next largest purchase, which was for uh, Skype, which is $8.5 billion. So huge difference there. Um, and you can also see the third is Nokia, uh, which was for $7.2 billion. Um, and they're all big purchases, right? Billions of dollars. But LinkedIn by far takes the cake in being this huge investment that Microsoft saw the value in LinkedIn and chose to purchase it. Yeah, and actually the, the LinkedIn one is more than all the others on this list uh, combined. Yeah, uh, yeah. Math in my head. So just as a comparison, right, for a lot of us, because a lot of us are STEM PhDs, you've probably heard of Beckman Coulter, which creates medical devices. Um, there's probably a medical device or a centrifuge or, or something in your lab from Beckman Coulter or, or, or you've heard of it. it Beckman Coulter was acquired by Danaher, another big company. Maybe you haven't heard of it. They're one of these larger kind of faceless companies that owns a lot of other companies. Guess how much they paid? Less than $7 billion, right? So all these medical devices and research devices that would allow you in your lab to do your research till the end of time, purchased for less than $7 billion. LinkedIn. A software app, 26 billion. Okay, Skype, right? Like a messaging, essentially a messaging app that allows phone calls, 8.5. So data, right? Everything, you know, the medical devices, all this stuff is, in a sense, if you look at the numbers, not as valuable as the ability to communicate that data, the ability to communicate with other people, the networks that revolve that, that are required for pushing science forward as an example or engineering forward. So again, this is just important for you to start, you know, putting on your industry hat, thinking about what's important in industry, really seeing the value of networks and connections, both practically for your job search and even, you know, as far as where the money is going in industry. Thank you, Jeanette. Great work. We're going to jump into our first guest interview now. Very excited to bring on Petra Fisher. We've had her on the show once before. Really, really informative. Uh, she works with a lot of international uh, PhDs and her clients and peers call her the LinkedIn storytelling wizard. Quite the title. I wish I had a title like that. Petra helps international professionals and entrepreneurs establish a LinkedIn presence that naturally attracts their dream client or employer. Executives with an outstanding track record hired her to add their personality to their LinkedIn profile. And that's where we're going to talk about personality. Uh, she lives with her teenage daughter and big fat red cat, her words. Uh, she loves to travel to Thailand. She's either got her nose in a book or the laptop or is out on a long walk. Um, and the magic word for her is tea. So you can connect with uh, Petra on her LinkedIn profile, of course. You can get her LinkedIn tips at PetraFisher.com and you can join her active LinkedIn tips in her Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash LinkedIn tips Petra Fisher. Hello, Petra. How are you? Good to see you again. Hey, good to see you too. So glad to be on again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. So good, great to have you on. You know, I, I mentioned that word personality. And yes. I know that's something you talk a lot about. So how can 
in this case, of course, PhDs, add some more personality, in some cases, at least, you know, for the first time ever, uh, an iota of personality, onto their LinkedIn profile, but do so in a way where they maintain their professionalism and can get hired in the industry? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, you're the prime example, aren't you? You know, you call your company Cheeky Scientist. So that, that is the prime example of adding personality to everything you do. Um, but, you know, when, when employment goes and if you want to move into industry or any employment, it's all about um, skills, values, and indeed personality trade. Um, so to, just to go off topic a tiny little bit, because skills are extremely important on LinkedIn, um, not just demonstrating that you've got skills, but there's a, a special section called skills, and you can add 50 skills in there. And I highly recommend you totally max that out because people are only going to see three of them anyway unless they click to see more. But it's keywords, 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 and search engines look for keywords. So definitely utilize that skill section, but also use those skills in all the descriptions in the experience section. Now, I know that everybody who's listening right now has filled in a description with every role in their profile, right? Um, <laughs> Maybe. I can see people blushing, even though I can't see them. I just know it. So that's your skills. And then your values, they're important too. Um, it depends how strongly you feel about them. If you have extremely political views, you might not want to work for certain companies, and then you're going to be more open about it. If you have values but you don't feel as strongly about it, you keep them to yourself. As for your personality traits, they are very important because if you project something you're not, if you're a very formal person, you know, and, and you like being formal, you do well with other formal people around you. But you've seen me and you think, oh, that's apparently how it goes, and you start being really chatty and casual and all that you're going to be hired into a company where you're miserable every single day because you, you don't fit in a company culture. So it is extremely important. And how you do it is lots of ways. Um, it's about your tone of voice. What kind of words do you use? It's also, are you going to be really succinct and put bullet points? Now, I know there's no bullet points on LinkedIn, but you just copy-paste them from someone else's. Um, or are you more little paragraphs? It's also about, um, let me see. Yeah, it's formal or casual. It's long stories or short stories. But it is even, um, if you have some really strong personality trait, then you might want to show that. So if you're the person that can't get through 10 minutes without cracking a joke, then put a bit of a joke in your profile as well because... If people are going to hate that, you already know you're not going to be comfy in that culture. Or if you are really sarcastic and like to the point that you can't hide it in your daily life, then you might show a little bit of irony or sarcasm um, in your profile as well. Because, yes, it's going to scare people off. Absolutely. If you go to my profile at the moment, um, I have done something that goes directly against everything I always recommend. My headline starts with cranky old fuddy-duddy claims to know shitloads about LinkedIn and then has something more. But that shows personality, right? It was there as a joke in summer, but I got so many connection requests from people high up in corporate saying, 
that headline just got me and I had to read your profile. So think about two things. Um, who are you? What comes most natural to you? And what can you get away with in the company environment where you would like to work? Once you find the balance between those two, you use that in all your writing, but you also use it in media you might want to add to your profile. Um, if you're going to add videos of yourself, think about it. Are they only when you're doing really formal presentations, because that's where you're most comfortable, or are they little um, really casual ones, you know, you're making a cup of tea, you had this brainwave and you had to record it straight away. It all shows your personality. So, so many different ways to add it there. The main thing is... Great stuff. Sorry, I wanted to jump in and recap because we covered so much ground. Sure. Um, what Petra's really talking about here is two things that we've talked about before, aligning your purpose and your audience. And yes. it's important. And it's a little bit of a balance. There's a little bit of an art to it. You are searching for a job. So, for example, you know, if you want to go work at a company where people dress up, then you should dress up. But at the same time, in general, you should also dress up like you're going to an interview, right? So you're looking for a job. It just depends on what your goal is. Obviously, Petra's goal is to attract, you know, companies and entrepreneurs in a different kind of relationship. You want to work for one of these companies full time, in house, you know, usually. So that's how you have to break things down. And, you know, I, I completely agree with her. Like, think about the kind of culture you want to work in. If you want to work in a very um, professional, conservative culture, such as you might find at a management consulting company, one of the larger firms like a McKinsey & Co., whatever, yeah, you better dress extremely formally. You better have a very professional profile, et cetera. But if you're looking for more of a very relaxed startup, you know, especially maybe in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, et cetera, maybe you want to be a little bit more relaxed. Maybe you know, even your dress might be a, just a little bit toned down, not much, but a little bit toned down from what you'd wear on an interview. And your conversation style, right? I mean, we, we don't want to recommend, you know, using certain types of language, whatever, but the key here is you're considering your audience and you're testing to see what works. Um, so I think all of those things are important. And just to go back to the very beginning of what Petra said, your skills show your personality. And, right, there's, there's that qualitative side, but there's also the quantitative side of they are key words that are on your profile and that will help you show up in, in search results. So... Personality comes down to language, obviously. So your language choice on LinkedIn is crucial. And yes. the language that you use will appeal to different companies, different company cultures, and different people, correct? Yes. So let me, let me move forward so we have time for this. Now, we have a lot of PhDs who have the academic culture, the academic language. How can they be more future-facing on LinkedIn, right? So they want to project that they are now ready for industry, they have business acumen, they can speak the language of industry. So what kind of language tips would you have for people, you know, maybe that you've worked with in the past for people who are getting their first job? Yeah, um, great question. And this is my, my autumn favorite topic because these days, everywhere I go, I say, make sure your LinkedIn is fully future focused. I even have it on my t-shirt these days. See, there we go. Make sure your LinkedIn is fully future focused because people tend to write about the past on LinkedIn. I did this, this, and that, and then I did that, that, and that. And that is boring. We can guess that from your job title. You know, what we want to look for is transferable skills, especially if you want to move out of academia into industry. If you're getting too specific, too detailed, it will only make sense to the people you used to work with back then. 
not the ones where you're going. Um, so important things are, yeah, so you know. One more time, because yeah. for academics and for PhDs, right, again, even in your skills, like Petra brought up, like you're allowing uh, Western blotting, cell culture to be brought up, and you're using the academic language of like these advanced methodologies that you've used that, you know, five people on the planet will understand. That is not the kind of language you want to use if you want to tra attract employers, especially hiring managers, recruiters who don't have a PhD. Yeah. So you want to you want to think of more generic skills, things like collaboration or, you know, big picture thinking or eye for detail, your communication skills. Um, if you've done your research in a team, then you have yeah collaboration skills, but maybe also leadership skills, all these kind of things. But most importantly, the way you're going to write it down is always I say, show me, don't tell me. Don't say, I have great communication skills and make a typo in that sentence while you read it. You know, it's like, doesn't tell me anything. I want you to say, by doing X, I achieved Y. So you're proving your skills. You're showing how it was used. And again, do it in a way that I can understand it. Mm. If I can understand it, I don't have a background of any of you because I don't come from academia. I don't come from business. So if I can understand it, anyone can understand it. And then, you know, in interviews and stuff, I think interpersonal skills, they tend to be more valuable than technical skills because I was at this conference two weeks ago where I was speaking to women in tag. And at one stage, I was in a breakout session with some young ladies. They were all working in tag. And this session that I was on the panel was about storytelling. And they said to me, if I make it to an interview, they already know I can do the job because tech is all about hard skills. So you look at my qualifications, you know I can do it. So it's adding personality, it's that bit of storytelling, it's those kind of things mm. that make the difference between are they going to hire you or you. And does that sound familiar, right? So again, as we keep saying, employers know that you have uh, the technical skills that you need. You've got the PhD. I mean, you have a degree that literally says you have the technical skills or you can learn them. It's a transferable skills. Where can you add videos? We talk a lot about adding media, images, pictures. Obviously, for those of you who are in our program, you want to add our association badge because it helps employers, uh, recruiters find you and, and shows that you've been trained. That's just one of the many uses of media. But specifically, you know, for media, for videos, maybe you can walk us through where they can be added, where they're not taken. Yeah, so they can be added in lots of places. Yep, they can be added with the summary. Um, and the good thing is they're now visible. There was a while there when if you added media to your summary, people had to click see more to see it, but at least now it's in the preview again. And as you can see, they're displaying six um, before you have to scroll. So that's with the summary. That's the very, very first impression. Then in the experience section, um, you can add media, so video or images or PDFs. That's all my clients that map. That shows where then that's an old video. Um, so in experience with every job role, you can add media. Now, when you, you post an update to LinkedIn, obviously you can also share a video when you share an update. If you own the video, if you have it, then it's better to upload it than to link to YouTube or Vimeo because you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, they're all the same. They want to keep the people on that platform. They don't want you to move away. So, um, yes, when you click that, then you can 
upload takes a little bit longer, but it gives you way more views than when you link to an external channel. Um, if you write an article, something you mentioned before, a long post, they don't gain as much traction anymore. Though they're a bit of a pain in the bum at the moment, but still you can add video to it. And um, company pages, you can, if you have a company page, like Cheeky Scientist would, most PhDs wouldn't have their own, but even if you're at work, you can add video to company pages as well. And I think video is really, really important because these days, I mean, it's the second search engine after Google and people, they're so used to it. There's always this big debate about subtitles. People say that you should always add captions to your videos because when people are watching on public transport or at work or whatnot, they won't turn on the sound. I think that's okay for instructional videos. But if you're using videos so that people can get to know you, so I won't use captions because people know my knowledge. It's out there. It's on, on my profile and my articles and my blog. My videos, I show my personality. So it shows my funny accent. It shows that I always look up or squint when I talk, all these kind of things. One of the really good things, um, I found that in a sad way from one of my clients, is, oops, my cat is knocking you over, so yeah, sorry about that. Um, if you have a last name that people in your country are not accustomed to mm. and combine that with pitch black hair, you might experience some prejudices, even though you have a PhD because somehow that face and last name speak stronger than your degree. So if you record a little video, even if it's just 30 minutes introducing yourself, saying, I'm so-and-so doing this, etc., it proves that you speak fluent English, that you're using academic words, etc. So you can use it for that. Um, oh, there's so many ways to use it. And how you add it on is different in every place. Like I said, you just showed us how to do it in an update. But if you write a long post, it's different. If you add it to your profile. So... I thought I should actually write about this. So if you're not on my newsletter yet, I think you should go to my website and do so because then I'll give a step-by-step -step instruction this weekend about all the different ways to add videos. So I've yeah. got articles out there why you should do it and what kind of videos, but I suddenly realized it might be good to have a step-by-step -step how to upload it. Yeah, and I, I want to say in closing here, um, and uh, I want to say a special thank you for, for you to be on, Petra. Thank you for your insights. I also want to say I, I think that last piece of advice for international PhDs is great, right? Get on, buy video, show, don't tell, how, you know, that you can speak whatever language you need to speak for that position. And, you know, yes. are uh, able to articulate yourself well. Um, very likely you have skills that, they don't realize or they might be misjudging you on video is a great way to to lay that to rest and to, to promote yourself so great advice petra thank you very much for being on great to see you as always thanks for having us we are going to continue forward with our next guest we're going to jump right in and bring on evgenia who is going to talk to us about her career transition so this is Evgenia, and Evgenia did her PhD in biochemistry with a focus on human genetics at the University of Buenos Aires. Um, from there, she gained valuable experience as an editor, um, working for a, quite a few companies, Cactus Communications, Mogo Edit, Clear Science, Self-Hacked. Um, she was also an associate editor at the Journal of the International Academy of Science, 
Humanities and Arts, uh, the, the Joshua Journal, and, and she also joined uh, Self-Hacked as their full-time chief scientific editor. Um, she's currently working as a medical writer and editor, co-editor, as well as a co-editor of EMWA's Medical Writing Journal. I think that's European, what is that, Evgeny, European something, right? European Medical Writer Association. Okay, okay. yeah, Medical Writer. <laughs> Uh, European Medical Writing Association's Medical Writing Journal and developing her science communication consulting business. Evgenia, how are you? Hi, Isaiah. I'm, I'm great and I'm super honored to be here at the radio show. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, where are you located right now? Uh, now I'm in Naples in the south of Italy for this month. Naples, that's right. Yeah, so uh, the connection by, might be a little bit spotty, but I think we're going to be okay here. It's good to see you. I wish I was in Naples. Um, my first question is very simple. Why medical writing? So we have a lot of new associates in the program. You know, you yourself are an associate. Um, a lot of PhDs who are considering maybe a different career than staying at the bench. So why did you choose medical writing? Well, that was actually the one of the main reasons. Like I, after my PhD, I was sure that I was passionate about science. I was passionate about like discussing science, communicating science, but I didn't want to stay in the bench and I didn't want to stay in academia. So I left and kind of like I felt very, you know, like um, I felt that communicating and helping others communicate their science was, was my thing. Like I was totally passionate about it. I was like editing other people's manuscripts during uh, my PhD. And I loved, you know, like writing my thesis and uh, making presentations, you know, like for congresses, writing my papers. And that was something that I really enjoyed. So I, I don't know, like when I thought about like the possible, the, the possibilities in industry. Let me jump in real quick. Yeah. So I, I want to focus on that first. Like, how did you make that decision? Would, was it just you liked to write? So you're like, oh, this is a skill I enjoy. And then you hated bench work. Or was it more complicated than that? Like, what made you? Because a lot of people have no, that, I that choice. They have a problem coming to that de decision. No, actually, I, I never hated the bench. It was just, um, yeah, I, I felt but um, that was, you know, like when I was doing the writing and like the, the communications part of the science, especially like bringing science closer to the people and doing something more applied than just staying in the lab doing uh, like what for me was, you know, like very small research that was not making an impact in the world. That was my way of contribution. Like, I, I always wanted to make a difference in the world. And that was the way, like, for me, communication is key in every aspect of my life. And, yeah, that, that was uh, what made sense. That's a great question to ask. You know, what, how could I have the biggest impact on the world? And it's usually where your skills line up, right? So what skills do I have that I, you know, what skills do I have? What skills do I enjoy? What skills are going to have an impact on the world? If you can match up those three things, that'll help you make a decision on where you want to go in your career. So for you, that was writing, medical writing. Now, what did that transition process look like? Well, you know, we all have a story, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about that story. 
Yeah, well, actually, um, my transition, like my first transition, and this was before I joined uh, TQ Scientist, was uh, quite a failed transition. I left academia, I left my PhD, uh, and took the first job opportunity that I could, and I stayed in that job miserably for for six months. Uh, that was like how long it took me to realize that I was really miserable. And I was like, I was not valued as a PhD, you know, like er everything that I could bring to the table was not valued at all. And of course, underpaid that, that's Goes without saying. almost obvious. Um, I'm still here. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, after that, basically, like I had my, you know, like my career crisis where I didn't know exactly what to do. And that's where kind of like the idea of, working in scientific communications came uh, came up and I knew about the association. Actually, I knew about the association because I met someone who was already in the association, uh, Jackie Johnson, and she was my mentor and she was also in the same industry that I wanted to get into. And she gave me the best advice and one of that, like of those advices was to join the association and to join like specifically, of course, like other medical writers associations. And from from that moment in my life, everything started falling into place. I realized that that was what I wanted to do, and then I actually gained the skills to know like how to do it and how to reach my goals. So, what were those skills that you had, like the the skills you had to learn? Right, I'm sure you had some transferable skills, et cetera. But what were some of the biggest aha moments during your transition into this specific career track? Well, I would say that like. For sure, the biggest one was learning to network and to add value. And actually, like, I, I wasn't doing it at all before. Um, but once I started, like, now I just love networking, you know? Like, I love talking to people. I love when people reach out to me with, you know, like, those questions like, oh, I'm so inspired by you and your job. Can you tell me more? Um, yeah, it's just, like, it, it feels amazing and collaborations with people. Um yeah, I would say like that was the main thing. And of course, like the the more technical things, like, you know, like having a, a good resume, you know, like a good LinkedIn profile that you can actually show to people and you will not embarrass yourself. Um, yeah, for sure. But adding value was, was the key point for me. So it just came down to relationships, adding value and networking, even to thrive in that role. And I think you'll see that no matter what career track you want to get into, even if you want to work at the bench in industry, you're going to have to get good at networking and communication and um, you know, you're, you're increasing your professional presence. Um, one, one of the last questions I want to ask you too is about, you know, your time as a manager. So I know you worked as uh, it was uh, editor in chief or lead editor um, in, at one of the organizations. So how did you, in, how did you find that role? Was it hard to learn how to manage people? What did you, not know you know in retrospect when you first started and then what did you learn in terms of effective management because a lot of phds we have transition into roles where all of a sudden you have three people reporting to you right especially if you get into a, a management position so looking back again what did you not know when you became a manager and then what did you learn that made you a better manager hmm. yeah that's a great question um actually when i like i joined the, i i found this position through a referral from one of of our chickies 
And I first started as just like a freelance uh, editor. I did a few jobs. And then all of a sudden, I had this full-time job offer. And it actually wasn't chief science editor uh, at the beginning. It was, you know, like just almost like technical proof, like technical editor, proofreader. And, and I was working full-time. And like very quickly, things transitioned from being just an editor, just part of the team of a startup company, to being in this situation where I was like managing uh, a team of like I think like at some point we had like eight editors and like at least thirty or forty medical writers working for us, and they were all remote. So it was at some point like it was a big challenge, but yeah, I think like my transition from from that position where I was like almost like in the um, in the background, you know, like just doing my my thing and then starting to um, relate to people and to to teach, you know, like I was basically, I think like I just saw someone asking like, how do you add value? And basically like, also like what I started doing is like everything that I learned to do as an editor myself, I started teaching it. And I started like seeing like everything that I could see that was an opportunity for improvement for the company. I was like, hey, what if we do this? What if we do that? I can do this. This comes natural to me, you know, like I can talk to this person, I can reach out. And, and that was what got me into the position, like into this like chief science editor's position. Um, and then um, I think like the management, you like at least in my case i i didn't get like any training it was like more learning by doing um but i was constantly getting because of like um i was working for a startup i was constantly getting feedback from um from people who were like like the ceo of the company my my peers like other project managers and also even like from people who i was uh training so yeah, so yeah, I, it was something yeah. that I had to learn. And I think, you know, th those key management skills, asking, learning to ask the right questions, learning to, to ask for help, to ask how could we do this better? What process would make that, this better? What systems? You know, as PhDs, you know a lot more about process and systems than you might think because you're using protocols, right? You probably use protocols all the time, whether in the lab, right, or at the computer. Um, methodologies you, you are very familiar with. And those are, the, those are the systems that allow businesses to scale, which make you a good manager. And then just listening to feedback, right? Again, asking questions, listening. These are all skills that you have and they go along with those transferable skills that Petra was talking about that you want to put on your LinkedIn profile, even if they seem super basic. You might think like uh, good listening skills is too basic. No, that is what an employer really wants to see. Really can be helpful. You know, asking good questions might think it's too basic because it's not technical, it's not, it's crucial. Um, so I think that's fantastic. So Evgenia, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. We're a little, little over the top of the hour, so I know we're going to have you back on soon. Please thank Evgenia for her time in the chat box too. If you have any questions about medical writing, you can reach out to Evgenia. We're going to be seeing a lot more of her. So thank you for your time. Have fun in April. Thanks a lot, Isaiah, for having me. See you soon. <laughs> thank you. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Thank you for tuning in, and remember to join us for our next live show, which we stream on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube page, 
every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash mycheekyscientist to watch us live or go to our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, you can go to cheekyscientist.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Boom, boom,